You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You're hungry and you want to eat. Fine, but it's what comes next that's tricky. Don't eat potatoes unless they're sweet potatoes, and then not too much because they have carbs. Eggs are good unless you eat too many, but eat eggs rather than anything with gluten, which includes beer. You can drink wine if it's red, but not every day. Don't eat sugar unless it's in fruit, but don't drink fruit juice because it has too much sugar. Don't drink coffee. No, wait, coffee's okay, I think. How come we don't know what to eat anymore? A diet advice used to be nothing more than a reminder to chow down from the four food groups, or was it seven? Or to be sure your meal was well-rounded, you know, get some variety in there. Well, that was nice, and it left room for interpretation, too. Of course, back in our hunter-gatherer days, there you know, was a straightforward test for what not to eat. I mean, you avoided it if it was bitter or if you keeled over after you ate it. But now our lives are more saturated with advice on what to eat than southern biscuits are with butter and gravy, which sadly probably doesn't make anyone's list of recommended healthy foods, although we'll get to why the word healthy is misleading. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, drinking some coffee. And welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. And in this episode, while opinions change as to what's good and what's not, we're going to help you sort the wheat from the gluten in evaluating the endless stream of nutritional advice. Uh, I'll have the eggs benedict and a side of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Is monsieur certain? What? Well, yeah, of course I'm certain. Eggs benedict is traditionally prepared with ham. Well, I should hope so. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and ham has lovely protein, but quel dommage is high in fat. Well, that's why it tastes good, so... Perhaps monsieur's happier if he eases off the fat? Seriously? Well, you know, you're probably right. I mean, okay, instead of ham, can you substitute salmon? Mm, And the dish is also prepared with eggs. Okay, no way. Eggs are good for you. I mean, studies say they're healthy. Well, that was last week. This week, eggs are bad. Don't tell me. Cholesterol? Antioxidants. Not enough, huh? Too many. You can't have too many. Oh, my God. What are you, my doctor? Okay, 86 the eggs. I will substitute broccoli, and we will dispense with the muffin. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. Gluten, huh? I'll give you more broccoli. (laughs) And what about my side of potatoes? Oh, 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 you joke, monsieur. They are a conglomeration of carbs. No, sir, I cannot allow. I substitute broccoli. There. Eggs Benedict without ham, muffin, or eggs. So I'm having salmon and broccoli with a side of broccoli. Excellent choice, sir. Anything to drink? I could really use a glass of wine now, but you know what? Never mind. I'm good. A hundred years from now, we may discover, like Woody Allen in Sleeper, that smoking is good for you and fruit is not. And ham is good for you. Why not? I mean, diet advice already feels counterintuitive. These days, the only thing you can feel confident about If someone touts a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou is the thou part. And that's only if it isn't a toxic relationship. Should you drink wine? Well, depends on the study that week. And bread? 
Don't even think about it. It wasn't that long ago when bread was more than just the staff of life. It was essential to survival. But, you know, today bread seems to be the enemy, not just because it's a carbohydrate, but because it contains gluten, whatever that is. You don't even know what gluten is. I know is. what gluten is. No, you have no idea I what gluten is. I do know what gluten is. Gluten's a vague term. It's, it's, it's something that's used to categorize things that are bad. You know, calories, that's a gluten. Fat, that's a gluten. Somebody just told you you probably shouldn't eat gluten. You're like, oh, I guess I shouldn't eat gluten. Surprisingly, a lot of people don't actually know what gluten is. Um, gluten is a protein. It's a, basically a general name for a group of proteins that exist in cereal grains. And gluten is responsible for the immune triggers that people with celiac disease experience. Today, many foods are marketed as gluten-free, and going gluten-free is a health trend. Now, people with celiac disease, who make up about 1% of the population, must avoid gluten because it damages their intestine. But according to a poll conducted by the market research company NDP Group, almost one-third of adults want to cut down or eliminate gluten from their diets. So are we all better off eliminating gluten from our diet? I mean, along with the gluten-free cookbooks and the restaurants, there are now gluten-free dating sites where people who want to avoid gluten can meet each other. Gluten-free, it's everywhere. It's got to be good. But does that mean there's evidence that it's actually healthier? And taking another tack, just because going gluten-free is popular, does that mean we should automatically dismiss it? Dana Liss is a dietitian and Ph.D. student at the University of Tasmania. She headed up a study on a group that has especially high goals for health, athletes. And she noticed that 40% of athletes were voluntarily going on gluten-free diets and claiming they felt better. But she wanted to verify whether the diets actually had a health advantage. Okay, first in overview. Dana, everyone is going gluten-free, it seems. So how the heck did that happen? What is it that suddenly swept over civilization as we know it to go gluten-free? I mean, where did that come from? I think there's a, definitely a, a number of triggers that have caused this evolution and the uptake of a gluten-free diet. One of them would be um, better diagnosis and better diagnostic tools for celiac disease and increased awareness of other gluten-related disorders such as non-celiac gluten sensitivity or wheat allergy. So there's an increased awareness, better diagnosis. And also there's a lot of media and just promotion of a gluten-free diet being healthier, whether or not it is still very controversial, but I think the media has played a huge role in the uptake of gluten-free diets as well. You mentioned celiac disease, a reaction to eating gluten. How would I know I had celiac disease? I mean, if I ate a you know, slice of bread, would something happen to me? Um, yep, there is an immune response to gluten with celiac disease. Oh, there's a huge range of symptoms, but GI symptoms such as bloating, diarrhea, and more nutrient-related symptoms such as iron deficiency, et cetera. So there are a range of symptoms that somebody with celiac disease would present with, but you also need to get diagnosed clinically. There's a few different ways to test, but it basically involves a blood test that looks at antibodies. So you'd have to be actually eating gluten to have a proper diagnosis of celiac disease. So you'd want to go see a specialist, gastroenterologist, and actually get the blood work done to determine if you had celiac disease or not. Now, is everybody who uh, claims a gluten intolerance suffering from celiac disease? Because I, I personally know people who, if they eat something with gluten in it, they get rashes over their body and stuff like that, but they don't seem to have celiac disease. Yep, there is a spectrum of non-celiac gluten-related disorders. Uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is one of those conditions. In terms of the diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that's one of the issues with it is there's not really a solid biomarker that we know that we use to determine this. So what is done clinically or to diagnose it is a really quite a long, about six weeks gluten removal where the actual patient doesn't know if they're having a gluten-free diet or not. So they go through a six-week gluten removal and then re-challenge to see if the symptoms reappear. Now clinically doing that six weeks, that's a pretty, pretty arduous intervention. So a lot of people are, you know, seeing, oh, I have GI symptoms, I'm getting bloating, I think it's when I eat breads or wheat-based products, I maybe have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So there's a lot of self-diagnosis going on, I believe. Now, clearly, if you're one of those folks with celiac disease, one of the 1% or whatever it is of the population, well, you have a pretty good reason 
to avoid gluten. But what about others? You helped run a randomized, controlled, double-blind trial, if you can say all that. Uh, <laughs> I have trouble saying it. <laughs> of gluten-free diets for athletes. First, maybe you should just elaborate a little bit on what a randomized, controlled, double-blind study is. So double-blind means that us as the researchers and the participants didn't know which diet they were on. So we ran two different diets. And randomized means that basically a computer generates which order the athletes get the diet. So either they either got a gluten-free diet or a gluten-containing diet first, had a 10-day washout period, and then got the other diet. So that's what randomized means. And then double-blind means that the researchers or the participants didn't know which diet was which. And so we ran this test on, or this, uh, this study on athletes. And a couple reasons for that is um, we did a, a preliminary sort of questionnaire that we had just under a thousand respondents, which is pretty, pretty big, pretty big response rate. Um, and we found that about 40% of non-celiac athletes were eating a gluten-free diet at least half the time. That's way higher than the incidence of non-celiac gluten sensitivity in the, in the average population. And from my work working in high performance sport, leading into the London 2012 games, I all of a sudden had a huge number of athletes that just swapped to a gluten-free diet. And talking to colleagues and as a practitioner, we really didn't know why so many athletes were switching to a gluten-free diet. And I didn't really have any evidence base with which to advise them on whether or not this diet was appropriate for them. So we did run a, a study based on our findings from our questionnaire that athletes believed gluten to improve performance, reduce inflammation, reduce GI symptoms, overall be healthier. We based our study on those beliefs in athletes. And we fed athletes a one-week gluten-free or gluten-containing diet, um, which was randomized as described. And they measured their gastrointestinal symptoms daily and during exercise. And we also brought them in for a performance test, which we also did blood work around. So we looked at if there was acute intestinal injury um, using a marker of, um, it's called intestinal fatty acid binding protein. So it tells us if there's injury to the gut. We looked at markers of whole body inflammation. We looked at psychological well-being, and we looked at performance. What we found was in these athletes, there was no beneficial or negative effect of a gluten-free diet for athletes that didn't have celiac disease. What you're saying is they did it, but it didn't help. I mean, it didn't make any difference. Yep. For our, for our intervention, it's only one study, and that's one thing that's important to note. It is the first study of this kind. So... But yeah, we didn't find any difference. But I mean, could there not be other reasons people feel better on a gluten-free diet? I mean, if they cut out pasta and bread, they, they may just, in general, feel less bloated and full. And, and cutting out desserts, well, maybe you cut out the sugar, which could make you feel good and help you lose weight. So the point is, people might just be feeling good on a gluten-free diet, but not because they've eliminated the gluten. Yeah, I definitely agree there. I think a gluten-free diet is is really multifactorial. And some people who switch to a gluten-free diet all of a sudden are becoming more aware of what they're eating. They're eating healthier. They're eating a more balanced diet. They're eating more fruits and vegetables. They're cutting a lot of those processed wheat-based products. So, you know, they go out for a coffee with some friends, and instead of buying that muffin, they're eating a piece of fruit instead or just having their coffee. So there's a lot of other dietary changes that may go on with the switch to a gluten-free diet. That could be responsible for the reported feelings of, oh, I feel better, I have more energy, I you know, less inflammation. There's a lot of things that go on there. Can you think of any harm in a gluten-free diet? I've seen athletes switch to a gluten-free diet, and instead of just buying, a, you know, a wheat-based cereal that they would usually eat, they're buying a really processed, like, gluten-free cocoa puffs, for example. I don't think that's necessarily a healthy decision. So in terms of the health of a gluten-free diet and the risks, I think it depends on the food choices an individual is making. If they're going gluten-free but still buying a ton of processed gluten-free products, well, that's not necessarily going to be a healthy diet. Well, Dana, what about our ancestors? And I'm talking here about 100,000 years ago, long before the invention of agriculture. Did they have this issue with gluten? Did they not eat it? And that's why some of us are still physiologically incapable of handling it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And the whole paleo diet debate is, is one that I find very interesting. There's the argument that we've, you know, genetically changed as we've evolved to tolerate gluten, just as there's been an increased ability to tolerate lactose. So there is the argument that, you know, we just aren't genetically set up to digest and tolerate gluten. I think that debate is still very controversial. 
But I think the problem lies more in the amount of processed wheat products that people are eating. Not necessarily that we are genetically set up to tolerate gluten, but the amount that some populations are eating is way more than we've ever eaten. Well, finally, Dana, you have the kind of job that if people find out what you do every day, they might immediately, it's sort of like being a doctor, you know, they'll immediately point to something that's causing them pain or whatever. What would you advise people who are thinking about going gluten-free? I would definitely advise them to assess their overall diet first. Really take a critical look at your eating patterns. I think some people will jump to a gluten-free diet and say, oh, I need to do this and this is going to be the healthiest diet for me. But really look at your overall eating patterns and take a critical look at that first. The second would be to, if you do believe you, you may have a sensitivity to gluten, is actually consult an evidence-based practitioner, whether or not that's a, a dietitian with experience in the area or a gastroenterologist to determine if you do have a gluten sensitivity or also if there's an underlying issue. Because sometimes what can happen if somebody swaps to a gluten-free diet an underlying issue that's maybe causing those symptoms can be overlooked. There's other components of wheat that may be responsible for the GI-related symptoms, such as short-chain carbohydrates or FODMAPs or ATIs, which are amylase trypsin inhibitors. So other components of wheat that may be responsible but not gluten itself. Dana Liss, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me and taking a look at our research. It's appreciated. Dana Liss is a dietitian and a PhD student at the University of Tasmania in Australia. Well, it looks like a very small percentage of the population has celiac disease, and there is a test for that, but there isn't one that's specific enough for non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so we don't really know who those individuals might be. Yeah, well, I mean, I know plenty of people who complain, and they may indeed be... Uh you know, I don't know, gluten intolerant, it might be 1% of the population, but without a test, you got to say, gee, it's, it's, it's really hard to know. And then there was that athlete study, a double-blind study, you know, the gold standard for these things. Uh, there were athletes who were claiming that after going off gluten, they felt better, so they actually tried to verify whether their health was better by, you know, putting some of them on gluten, others not on gluten, but they didn't know. Going off gluten didn't seem to make any difference to their health. But that doesn't mean that going off gluten doesn't make you feel better. Some people do feel better if they cut out gluten-rich products. Yeah, well, she mentioned, you know, you don't get that muffin at Starbucks, and maybe you do feel better, but maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the gluten. Maybe you shouldn't eat so many muffins. Or maybe if you're going off gluten, you're also being more careful about what you're eating, and you're just being more choosy in general. So yeah. there could be some other reasons. Yeah, she said you pick up the apple. And, and she also made the point that you don't help yourself by going gluten-free and then just stocking up on gluten-free jelly donuts. Is there such a thing? I don't know, probably. It may not be clear whether going gluten-free will improve your gusto-grabbing lifestyle, but here's something that's adding to the confusion over what to eat, our imprecise language. Up next, a cook and food writer who says that no food is healthy. And later in the show, research into whether that fitness tracker on your wrist is really helping you get off the couch. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check, Glutinous Maximus. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the problem of figuring out what foods are better for your health may be that we don't know what we're talking about. It may seem self-evident. Cake is not healthy. Kale is healthy. Wine is or isn't healthy, right? Nope. None of that is accurate, says Michael Ruhlman, a cook and food writer. 
were tangled up in imprecise language, he writes in a Washington Post article entitled, No Food is Healthy, Not Even Kale. Michael, for some reason, no one knows what to eat anymore. But we do all have the same goal of being healthy. And to do that, we want to eat healthy food. And now you come along and you say that, well, healthy food doesn't exist. What do you mean by that? I mean that the word healthy is bankrupt. It doesn't mean anything. And the reason is our food isn't healthy. It's nutritious or not nutritious. We are healthy if we eat nutritious food. And to me, that distinction is emblematic of a lot of confusion surrounding the words we use to describe our food. Well, it seems you're saying that even kale, which I guess is the poster plant for, for healthy food, <laughs> isn't healthy. I mean, but it seems to be a picture of health. I mean, it's leafy, it's green. What's wrong with calling kale healthy? Anything that's dead on your plate is not healthy. It has nutrients in it, and that's what's important. The kale may have been healthy when it was in the ground. It may have been a healthy crop, but when it's cooked on your plate or cut up in a salad, it's not healthy. It's nutritious. Well, give me an example, Michael, of how you'd like food. I mean, uh, food that's good for us, if I can say that, how you would like it described, discussed, packaged, advertised. That it's nutrient-dense is the biggest thing to me, that you eat a balanced diet that you cook your own food, that you buy whole foods, whether it's legumes like black-eyed peas or black beans, and cook them yourself, that you buy meat that's been well-raised and don't eat too much of it. So much of it is common sense. We just need to think a little bit more clearly about the food we eat and the terms we use to describe it. So this misuse of language, I mean, I'm thinking now about foods that are advertised as all-natural I mean, I've never known quite what that means because in the end, they're just protons and electrons. And in, in fact, all the food is protons and electrons, even if it's not all natural. It, what does that mean, all natural? I don't know. Natural versus all natural. Yeah, if it's not all natural, is it just only partly natural? I don't know. <laughs> it's that kind of terminology that has become meaningless because we've listened to the marketers and the food companies, and they're playing off buzzwords that we're hearing in the media. The whole fat is bad. Probably one of the most harmful things that has happened to the way people think about food. We now know that sugar is probably one of the worst things for us, and we're eating too much of it. So I was in the grocery store, and I asked the woman why she was buying fat-free half and half. Half and half is defined by the amount of fat in it, the amount of dairy fat in it. She looked at me and said, because it's fat-free? I said, well, what do you think they replaced that fat with? And she actually picked up the card and read the first two ingredients, first one was skim milk, and then she said corn syrup. So what they've done is they've taken out something that's not bad for us and put something in that is bad for us and marketed it to us as though it's better for us. And that drives me bananas. When I go to the... Which are good for you. (laughs) (laughs) They certainly have appeal. When I go to the... (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. When I go to the local uh, supermarket, I tend to go to a Tony one, which has, uh, the food is generally speaking, overpriced. But a lot of it is labeled organic. Organic. Now, I've never quite understood Mm -hmm. that. You know, what does that mean, organic? If it has carbon, it's organic. I mean, jet fuel to a chemist is organic, but, you know, it doesn't make a great meal. Organic is is a tricky word. And generally speaking, it's probably better to eat organic since we just don't know. But also, organic's sort of been co-opted by big food companies, so the verdict's still out on that one as far as I'm concerned. I would rather people just eat natural food, cook the food themselves, and share it with their families. Cooking does take work. The best diet advice I've ever heard is cook your own food. Eat whatever you want, just cook it yourself. Because if you're cooking your food, it means you're eating whole foods that have a fiber matrix, that have protein, that have appropriate amounts of fat that satiate you to the right degree, and that's the way to eat. I never eat fast food. I avoid the things that make me feel bad after I eat them, such as Pringles, which I love. But if I eat a whole can of them, I feel crummy. And that's another indication that my body is saying, these are not good for you. So pay attention to how you feel after you eat. That's a good indication of how good it is for your body. Well, finally, Michael, uh, one of the terms that you write about that most appealed to me was mechanically separated meat. 
I mean, <laughs> I'm just, I, I can see the assembly line now, all these robots wearing, you know, white gowns and, and caps on the, <laughs> pulling apart cows. What, what is mechanically separated meat? As one grocer put it to me, mechanically separated meat is basically poultry carcasses that still have a lot of various meat parts still stuck to the bone. They're put into what is, in effect, a giant salad spinner and, and whipped around until all the meat and, and other stuff, nerve and cartilage, flies off, and they scrape down the wall and use that as the meat product, which is how we get something like turkey bacon. And it's not necessarily bad. I mean, I don't want to eat nerves and bone fragments, but I want people to know what it is. Nobody knows what it is until somebody attaches an interesting word to it, such as pink slime. Once this started being called pink slime, it took off. Everyone in the news media was writing about it. So again, that shows the power of words. Pink slime versus mechanically separated meat. Same thing, whole different effect on your thought. Michael Ruhlman, thanks so very much for speaking with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Michael Ruhlman is a cook and author of many books about cooking, as well as a recent trio of novellas, In Short Measures. Well, what is going on? How did the world of nutrition get so confusing? Beth Squarecki, a nutritionist and science journalist, promises to help sort things out. Eating is sort of simple, and we believe it should be simple, right? Because we eat all the time, and we we think about, you know, okay, what should I eat? But on the inside, what's going on in our bodies and scientifically figuring out what each nutrient, each little component of the food does to each process of our body is really complicated. This does seem to me to be somewhat of a new phenomenon. I mean, I don't really remember what it was like before the Second World War, for example, but I can't imagine that there were as many you know, articles and books and everything else about what you should be eating back then as there is now. I don't really know from a historical perspective if there's more of it, but You know, I think I can see some of the reasons why we get so much different conflicting information. Partly it's, you know, science is evolving and we're learning. And part of it is, you know, a little bit the media, too. It's it's hard to have a magazine and just say every month, eat your vegetables. You know, people want to hear about health. And it's been said we make 200 decisions about food every day. Just, you know, should I eat this or that? Or should I take another bite of this or not? So anytime there's a different new little piece of information, that's something that people want to talk about and want to position as new when sometimes maybe it's not really new or sometimes it's a very detailed detail that doesn't really change what the big picture is. Well, maybe you could give me an example of that. Well, I think maybe superfoods would be a good example. Like it's it's not really news that a certain fruit would be good for you, but somebody's taking one study that looked at one component of something that you know, might be in a lot of different foods, but they studied it in one food, and then they'll come out and say, cranberries are great for you because blank. And what it really comes down to is, well, there was a study this month that, you know, this one component in this one fruit can do this one thing for this one mouse in this one condition. A lot of superfoods, what's supposed to be great about them is they have antioxidants. And then we find out that antioxidants can do something good for your body, or they can do something good in a test tube or in a cell. But that's a very different question from, should I change how much cranberries I eat? Now, one thing I'd like to address are these studies about, you know, this is good for you, that's bad for you, whatever. You take something like diet, you know, there are thousands of things you could eat, and then they'll find data from maybe thousands of people who are eating some of this stuff, and they'll just run some statistics on all this stuff, and they'll find all sorts of correlations. And, you know, a lot of these correlations look pretty good from a statistical point of view, but they're nonsensical. You know, if you have a pet snake or something like that, it turns out that uh, that's highly correlated with eating cooked broccoli or something like that. I mean, should we trust this stuff? Well, that's the thing. Nutrition is really hard to study, and we only have so many ways of studying it, and none of them are really very good. We we can't really take two groups of people, like large groups of people, and lock them up and feed one group this diet and one group that diet and then get the results in 90 years and see, you know, who is more healthy. You know, it's unethical, it's impractical, and by the time 90 years has gone by, you know, there's going to be some different diet that people are interested in. We make do the best we can, or scientists make do the best they can with some different kinds of studies, and one is looking at sort of like chemically and and in terms of cell biology what different little things do in the lab. The other is by asking people, so what did you eat and how healthy are you? And these studies are notoriously difficult to get any valid conclusions out of. And a lot of them, if they actually go and try to 
turn this into a piece of advice, like, okay, you should eat this specific thing, it very often turns out to be not the case. These, these studies are, I don't want to say they're useless because they can give people clues as to what to look into or what might be a good diet, but don't read too much into them. Okay, so we, we really shouldn't trust these things. I mean, everybody has stories about, well, I used to think that, uh, I don't know, chocolate was bad for me, but then I read a study that said, well, actually, it's good for me, and then two years later, it comes out another study saying it's bad for you. I, I take it that this isn't deliberate malfeasance on the part of the people running the studies. It's just that it's too easy to find correlations in, in data when you have a lot of data, and much of it is, if you will, unreliable data. Yeah, that's true. And and then the other thing is sometimes these studies, when you take them all together after, you know, many of them have been done, you can sort of look at them and see, okay, these were studying the question in different ways or, you know, they're different parts of the question. And when you look at, when you read these studies, it'll say like chocolate makes you live longer or something like that. But if you look into what the study actually was, it's not chocolate. It'll be you know, some chemical that naturally occurs in chocolate that they went and made like a concentrate of of just this chemical and they fed huge doses of that to mice and the mice had such and such reaction. But, you know, it's hard to explain that. So they say, well, chocolate, you know, a thing in chocolate. And then the, the headline will sort of skip that entirely and say, chocolate makes you live longer. <laughs> and that's not at all what the study was. Well, as someone who has clearly looked into this with some care, if somebody at the, the next booth in the restaurant asks you, you know, how should I think critically about these studies that come out about food, what do you tell them? Well, I don't look at individual studies, honestly. And even when I'm writing about them, I, I, try, to, I try not to write about, like, here's this one study that says one new thing. I always look at what's the, the field in general. And you can look at this if you read a news report about a new study. You know, if it's a good report, that reporter will be talking to a scientist who wasn't involved in the study who can try to put it in context and say, you know, this is just one weird thing and this isn't what the rest of the field has been telling us. Or sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, this is part of what some of us have been saying for a long time. And there's a lot of evidence building that, for example, cholesterol in your diet doesn't raise the cholesterol in your blood or something like that. You know, recognizing when a study comes out that it's one new piece of information for a field that is continually learning and, you know, to not put too much stock in any one study because it's part of a big picture. Well, is there any food advice, is there any study which has that kind of consensus that you could tell this person in the next booth, hey, look, one thing I can tell you is avoid this or eat more of that? Um, yeah, there are just a few things that almost everybody will agree on. With everybody I've seen talking about different diets, everybody says people should be eating lots of vegetables. And everybody says people should be avoiding sugar. You know, aside from like the Confectioners Association and like spokespeople for Coca-Cola, those are the only people you'll find like going on record saying like, yeah, you should drink lots of soda. But those are consensus. And then when it comes to other things, like, okay, well, what about saturated fat? Or what about, you know, should I eat a lot of carbs or try to avoid carbs? Those are things where there are real disagreements even among scientists. But vegetables and sugar are, I think, the place where you'll see a consensus. That seems to be the recommendations that we hear from government agencies. It sounds to me like they would at least know their statistics and tell you stuff that has some basis in fact. Um, sort of. So if you look at the um, the new dietary guidelines that just came out, it's very interesting because they're based on a scientific report that there's this committee that goes through all of the studies and you know makes their recommendations. And a lot of scientists were really applauding this report, saying, you know, it gets a lot of things right. And then there were changes between that and when the report, you know, the official dietary guidelines came out. There is less emphasis on avoiding sugar. And even though the the scientific document said, you know what, stop worrying about cholesterol. It just doesn't matter anymore. The official dietary guidelines, you know, it's, it's almost like there's this inertia. It's hard to change. The guidelines now say there's not an official limit on cholesterol, but still limit your cholesterol. Let me follow up on that a bit. The government, you know, comes out with these recommendations, and uh, you're sort of implying that, well, they might be a little bit hesitant or watered down or something. I mean, what's going on there? Well, there's a lot of a lot of different fingers in the pie, so to speak. There's a lot of scientific 
information that goes into it and scientific consensus and there are disagreements among scientists so it's like okay which ones do you pick but then there's also political aspects and if you think about it one of the agencies that's responsible for producing these guidelines the USDA is also responsible for supporting agriculture economically and so if you know the people that that farm our beef don't like that the guidelines are are saying to avoid meat for example that was one of the controversial things you know they might put some pressure on it or the the committees might feel some pressure another difference this year was that the committee that wrote the report recommended considering sustainability you know like if we're telling people to eat a lot of something does it matter what the environmental impact of that is and the guidelines as they came out, like there was actually a a congressional move to block the idea of including that in the guidelines. So there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of commercial interest, and just a lot of stuff going on. Well, finally, Beth, you know, if, if you're an anthropologist and you study cultures around the planet, either today's or the ones from 500 years ago, it turns out that, you know, they eat all sorts of different stuff, and some of them have very specialized diets because they're near a beach or something. I mean, you know, humans are able to eat anything, and they don't seem to all, you know, some of them don't seem to be all keeling over at age 25 because of their diet. So could it be that the, the real old-fashioned dietary tip, anything in moderation, is the truth? I really hate when people say everything in moderation because that just becomes the excuse to say, oh, well, whatever I'm doing, you know, like as long as I do it in moderation. And, you know, there, there are many diets that can work. That's something we definitely know, especially if you're looking at weight loss. You know, it seems like almost any diet can work if you pick one diet and stick to it. But when people say everything in moderation, you know, it's almost like throwing your hands up and saying, I give up, whatever, whatever I'm doing is fine. And if you need evidence about that, just look at the people that make soda and candy and junk food, and they all love this everything in moderation message. And they say, oh, yeah, you can consume our product just in moderation, which can mean whatever you want it to mean. (laughs) Well, Beth Skwarecki, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Beth Skwarecki is a nutritionist and science journalist. Well, we may be confused about what to eat, but at least we know how to exercise. And according to this nifty high-tech device here on my wrist, it's time to exercise. So I'll just hit remind me later, and I'm good. Next, a new study on whether wearable devices that collect all kinds of personal data in order to prompt us to exercise actually get us to break a sweat. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science, skeptic check, glutinous maximus. exercise every day after you've polished off the cheesecake or when your digital device reminds you to meet your step count for the day. I have an iPhone, so I use my smartphone to track my step count. Are you tracking your steps today? How many steps have you taken? I have not taken many today. Let me look here. Probably at 2,000 steps today. I've been sitting at my desk most of the day today, unfortunately. His daily goal is 10,000 steps, as it is for many who own a digital fitness tracker, whether a smartphone or wrist wearable. Mitesh Patel needs to move more today, as do most of us. The difference is that Dr. Patel also tracks the trackers, those nifty devices, to see if they really prompt us to don our tracksuits, if anyone wears those anymore. In other words, the assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School has published research into whether these high-tech and expensive devices adorning the wrists of many a health-conscious consumer and collecting all those biometrics are making us any fitter. He also wanted to know whether the devices can help those who are most in need of improved health those with chronic health problems. I mean, we clearly don't know what to eat anymore, so maybe it's no surprise that we might also need a hint or two on how to move. An accelerometer that measures forces and movement, as well as other sensors, might be just the ticket. 
So most of these devices have an accelerometer within them that measures movement kind of on a 3D axis. So it allows you to get a sense of whether or not you're moving and how fast you're moving to differentiate between whether you're walking or you're running. And they use these movements to try to estimate, for example, when you're looking at sleep, if you, you know, stop moving for a period of four or five hours at night, then they, you know, they assume that you're sleeping. And depending on how much you're moving, they can try, try to estimate whether it's deep sleep or light sleep. Well, there's a difference between running around the lake and tapping my foot nervously. Would both of those count towards my exercise goal of the day? You know, the question is whether or not they would they would be tracked by the device and then whether or not they should count. So in, in many instances, some of the everyday things we do, whether it's just typing or tapping your foot, as you mentioned, might get tracked by the device because it is a movement, but it, it probably wouldn't get counted in exercise if we were trying to evaluate whether or not that would help you to improve your health. <laughs> That's too bad. That nervous nervous activity doesn't count towards exercise because a lot of us would be more fit than we are. Now, isn't there a recommended 10,000 steps a day that was put forth, and where did that number come from? So it's interesting that this idea of 10,000 steps a day was actually first started in Japan as kind of a marketing technique to sell pedometers. There's not a lot of evidence to say that 10,000 steps is the magic number. We know that 10,000 steps is a lot because the average person in the United States walks about 5,000 steps a day. So it's twice as much activity as the average person. But the challenge is that that, that we found in, in prior research that it's harder to engage the people that really need to change their behavior. The folks that are more sedentary walking two or 3,000 steps because they sit at a desk all day, it's really hard to get them 10,000 steps. So when we try to do studies with this 10,000 step number, what they've seen is that it tends to only engage the people that are more motivated to start with, that may start with a baseline activity of 8,000 steps a day. So it really puts into question whether this 10,000 steps a day number is the right approach for everyone. Now, Mitesh, you said that the goal is to spur us to exercise more. That's the goal of these devices. But you indicated that the devices might not be doing that because you need someone that has some motivation anyway. What is your overview and what has your research suggested about how these devices are helping us to be more fit? Well, I think everyone's excited by the, the potential that these devices can help us better engage in our health, whether that's exercise, eating better, sleeping better, losing weight, whatever it might be. The challenge is that the people who really need these devices are not the ones that are using them. So, you know, only a few percent of the population, two or three percent of the population have a wearable device. They tend to be younger, more tech savvy, more affluent. They're not the patients that you see with chronic conditions who are repeatedly coming into the hospital or the emergency department. Those types of individuals tend to have less motivation or are less likely to go out and, and put down the money to buy one of these wearable devices. If you do have access to a wearable device, there, there's not a lot of evidence to show that people sustain their use. About half of people that buy a wearable device stop using it within a few months. Even if you have it and you use it, there's a question as to whether it's accurately tracking your behavior. And then if you can get all three of those things, you've got the device, you're continuing to use it, it's accurately tracking your behavior, then comes the most important part. How do you take that information and use it to actually change your behavior and then sustain that over a long period of time? And, and there's not a lot of evidence to show that these devices by themselves can do that. We do think that by combining them with other engagement strategies, there is potential, but we need to do more study around that. But isn't remembering part of exercise regimens, and hasn't it always been? You need to remember to bring your, say, your gym clothes to work so that afterwards you can go and work out. And even in the case of medication, medications don't work unless you take them. Isn't that a basic premise of anything that we do to try to make ourselves healthier? And wouldn't that apply to these devices as well? So the way I think about this is, is there's several components to get people to change behavior. There's education, there's reminding someone, um, and then there's things to incentivize or motivate people. So with education, you know, we need to know that smoking is bad for you in order to quit smoking. We need to know that exercise is good for you in order to exercise more. And we know that a lot of people who smoke know that smoking is not good for them, yet they continue to smoke. So oftentimes we find that education is necessary, but not sufficient alone. The reminders can help people who are just at the cusp of, you know, being motivated enough to go to the gym or have that level of motivation but just need that extra nudge, um, reminding them that, hey, it's 5 p.m. and you've only walked 2,000 steps. Maybe you should go to the gym or go for a run. But for the people who have lower levels of motivation, that reminder alone is often not enough. And that's when we tend to think about how do we design either a financial incentive or a social incentive 
to pair with these devices to really help motivate you to change your behavior. A lot of our work centers around behavioral economics and thinking of, of individuals not as perfectly rational, but instead that they're predictably irrational and they tend to be more motivated by immediate rewards than rewards that are pushed into the future. Well, what's interesting is that you said that you're applying something called behavioral economics. You didn't say behavioral psychology. What is the role of economics in influencing people's decisions? So behavioral economics is a, kind of at the intersection of psychology and economics. We tend to think of standard economics as being people are perfectly rational, meaning that they'll do things for the long-term goals. So they'll exercise, they won't smoke, they won't you know, eat dessert and things like that when it's not needed. Behavioral economics understands that people you know, don't always behave rationally. And so can we use those insights to then design interventions that effectively address these predictable barriers to behavior change? We've been talking about how effective some of these devices might be, but they are examples of sophisticated technology in some cases. How accurate are these devices? Have you studied that? So that's a great question. There's not been a lot of work to determine whether these devices can actually do what they say they do. Um, so we did a study to look at the accuracy of wearable devices and smartphones for tracking step counts. We brought individuals into a gym, put them on a treadmill, and asked them to walk 500 steps or 1,500 steps. And we had an observer count the steps with a tally, so we knew how many steps they were walking. And then we had them wear 10 different devices, three wearable devices on the wrist, two accelerometers and one pedometer on the hip, and then we had them put an iPhone and an Android in their pocket, simultaneously running multiple different smartphone apps to track steps. And after every interval, we had them get off and show us what the devices said compared to what the observer found. And what did you find? And we found that, for the most part, most of these devices were fairly accurate. One wearable device was 22% lower than um, the other devices, so that one was not accurate. Um, but what was surprising from the study was the smartphone apps were just as accurate as the wearable devices. And it's an interesting finding because two-thirds of Americans have a smartphone and carry it with them everywhere that they go. Some of the challenges with wearable devices is that you have to sync them, you have to charge them, you have to remember to wear them. These are things you already do with your smartphone. And these apps are available uh, to download in a couple of minutes for free. And so it might be one way to really engage the larger population in their health more quickly and then might be a gateway towards using wearable devices once people are more engaged. Well, Mitesh, it, it strikes me that we've made exercise so complicated. Um, we have these devices coming in to do things that we used to just do on our own, you know, count the number of times you ran around the block and uh, run for 45 minutes. All you need is a watch for that and a pair of running shoes. Why don't we know how to exercise anymore? And are we outsourcing some of our very basic instincts you know, you bring up a good point, which is one, you know, one of the most important things around our health and our exercise is the environment and the culture that we live in. You know, in some countries, people tend to, you know, bike to work more often than they do in other countries. And that, that kind of thing is important. It's the same amongst people. So some people are used to going out and going for a run. There's, again, tend to be the people that are more motivated. Many people are not. And so we're hopeful that these innovations in technology can help nudge us when appropriate but can also give us a bigger picture and understanding. You know, a lot of the, the data that's been out there around how active people are is based on surveys and self-report. We actually don't have a lot of hard data on how many steps people walk until recently. And so this technology can help us do things that we couldn't do before. But at the end of the day, I think the, the key point, as you mentioned, is you either need to be motivated and, and, and be interested in engaging in your health and being more active or not. And there's there's some question as to how these devices can play a role, but we're hopeful if we can find the right engagement strategy that they can help to change behavior. Well, Mitesh Patel, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Mitesh Patel is an assistant professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine and assistant professor of healthcare management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. So it sounds as though what he's saying is that these wearables only work if you use them correctly. Yeah, well, that doesn't <laughs> surprise me. I mean, it, you know, it's like I could get a treadmill for my bedroom, but if I just look at it and never get on it, it probably doesn't improve my health, although it may improve the aesthetics of my bedroom. I don't know. But also the people who could most benefit from them are not using them, people with chronic health conditions, for example. And he would like to find a way to design them or 
tweak them in a manner that would help the people who most need them. Yeah. I, I think that the future may lie in having implantable devices that monitor as much of your health as possible. And, you know, there's no choice in it. It's not voluntarily. It just downloads all that information to your doctor and you can see things. But look at the trend, what we're hearing in the show, is that we need help in figuring out how to exercise, how to move, and what to eat. And it sounds as though sometimes we can follow the fads a little too closely, and that maybe common sense, if any of us remember what that is, is a better thing to fall back on. I must say that this whole complex subject of what you should eat, what's good for you, what's not good for you, it just reminds me of why I liked astronomy, because it's not so messy. You only need a couple of numbers to describe a black hole. Look at how much data you need to decide whether you should eat that muffin. I don't know about that. That nutrition is more complicated than black holes? Well, Stephen Hawking might not say so. (laughs) All right. Well, what we've learned then is don't eat too much sugar, eat your vegetables. And I like Michael Rollman's advice, cook your own food. Those are the only pieces of advice we can give you from what we heard today. And the rest of it, you just need a dose of skepticism. It all comes down to this. There's just no secret sauce, including secret sauce. No, there is secret sauce. The The point is you need to find out what's in the secret sauce before you eat it. <laughs> but it's a secret. <laughs> Thanks to the healthy and fit characters who help produce this show, and that is no secret. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and our intern, Aaron Ross. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking Skeptic Check. This episode, Glutinous Maximus. If you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to us over the air because you like to be gluten to the radio, check out the listing on our website of stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen by using iTunes, we invite you to leave a review about Big Picture Science on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, email us at bigpicturescience at seti.org. That meal was delicious. Do you care for coffee, sir? Well, yeah, if I'm allowed to have it. But of course. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm alerted to new research. Hey, hey. Coffee is now très, très bad. I must take it away. Fortunately, we have a little bit of broccoli juice. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.